Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Performance Consultant and Director of Supporting Champions, Steve Ingham. Thanks for tuning in to episode 240 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm really excited to get Steve on today. He's been on my hit list for quite a while now, given the work that he's doing through his business, Supporting Champions. So anyone that hasn't heard of Supporting Champions, they put on a uh, conference, which a lot of people will have heard of, and was a couple of weeks ago, on the same day as the, um, the Kitman Labs conference, unfortunately, which meant I couldn't make it. But they've got a conference, obviously the business running behind it. There's also um, the content that they put out. And one thing that really forced me to, to pick up the phone and, and give Steve a call and get him on the pod was his webinar series. Now, the webinar series is for the emerging coach, the emerging practitioner, and it's all around, well, there's, a, there's multiple webinars, and they're based around CV writing, cover letter writing, where to look for jobs, internships, all the kind of topical issues that are going on, at the, going on and being talked about at the moment in the industry. So if you haven't checked them out, we talk about it a lot in the podcast, but have a little look on um, on the podcast page, on my podcast page, and all the links will be on there. So strengthofscience.com forward slash 240. So we discuss loads about the webinars and about the, the business of supporting champions, but also around Steve's expertise in the leadership space, um, communication, and how that can translate not only to sport, but into business and what's learning sport over to the business um, arena as well. So really interesting chat from my point of view, um, given what I'm doing with the podcast and things. So a really interesting chat with Steve, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can do, I and mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanist researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app for lower limb load monitoring uh, and helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So unlike GPS, AMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two very small synchronized high frequency tibia one sensors which quantify three things. The intensity of each step an athlete takes, precise left and right lower limb asymmetry and cumulative tibial load. So iMeasureU is now part of Vicon and works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world. So if you want to get more information and know more about iMeasureU, head over to the website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Steve Ingham. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this morning, I am delighted to welcome performance consultant and director of Supporting Champions, Steve Ingham. So welcome to the podcast, Steve. How are we doing? You all right? I'm absolutely fine. Thank you very much. Thank you for giving up your time on a, on a Monday morning. Anyone that doesn't know who you are, you just want to give us a bit of background on yourself, um, education-wise, and then take us through a journey um, through your career. Yeah, sure. So uh, my background, my fundamental background is as a physiologist. Uh, I spent the last 25 years working hands-on with athletes and I've continued to do that through my career. I, most notably, in the late 90s, I was working with the British rowing team and that through to sort of the Athens Olympics and then 
really my my work and probably main passion has been working with uh, track and field athletics. Uh, so that I've always done that really, and continue to to work with with those athletes. And then that's that's kind of one feature of my career. And then another aspect to that, when I was at the Olympic Association at the English Institute of Sport, is that I've always uh, been involved in the leadership aspect of of teams and the system. So at the British Olympic Association, I was the sports science manager almost before the the wave of institute systems. And then at the English Institute of Sport, I was head of physiology. And later on, I was the director of science and technical development, which was very much the essence of of supporting the the science and medicine aspects of of the system behind Olympic and Paralympic sport. Uh, But it was also, and which is probably a a big feature of what we do now, is about understanding what it takes to be an outstanding practitioner, but also how you can make sure you deliver that as a high-performing team. Um, so I had an undergraduate from University of Brighton, and my PhD was in oxygen uptake kinetics out of the University of Surrey. Uh, I did that whilst I was I was working, and um, and yeah, that's me. That's yeah. What else do you need to know? What other interesting features can I share? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm interested to know more about um, kind of later years with supporting champions where that came from what was the kind of inspiration what was the um what was the need you felt was was there to for you to plug that gap i've always been really conscious of of who i am what i do the impact i'm having and that connection with athletes that i'm working with um we always think about the the technical aspect have i have i done the right thing have i have i calibrated something or have i have i taken the right kit and we default to that tools mentality of i've got something that i can measure and so i'll i'll just go around trying to see if i can use that on everyone that's wandering around um but the big the big shifts for me have been based around the the interpersonal interactions with high performers when I first went into the uh, that that world in in the sort of late 90s it was it was hardcore it was really you know really difficult for me as a young practitioner just to just think how am I going to convince a multiple Olympic champion that I've got something interesting to say to them and um, I wanted to, to genuinely journey with them as opposed to just go in and tell them what to do and uh, probably uh, probably my my background going to a fairly rough comprehensive school stood me in good stead of reading people and be, building rapport so that I didn't get punched in the face um, <laughs> at, at school and in work. But um, the, uh, probably if there was one key moment that that started the the birth of this concept of supporting champions and and developing people so that they are more effective was the Beijing Olympics. Uh, so 2008, I was, I just transitioned. I, I, I was still working as a scientist with my number of athletes. I was still working as a leader in that system. But I, I took the opportunity to coach Kelly Southerton, the heptathlete. Uh, I coached her running as a part of a, a multiple coach team. And I mean, there's a, there's a slight tangent there that she didn't get the results on the day, but she's been awarded retrospectively the uh, the medals for heptathlon and four by four, which was dodgy Russian dopers that that uh, that caught her out there on the day. Um, but I I coached, and as a support scientist, I had spent a lot of time being a bit of a noisy. I've got a new idea, coach. What do you think about this? What do you think about that uh, input? And and really what I wanted was clean, uh, distraction-free focus on the things that absolutely matter. So I, I came out of the Beijing Olympics transformed in my mindset about, um, about being more artful in the way I work. And and then, then really the the... the the big change was that the phone started to ring and this was performance directors, uh, coaches, some athletes actually uh, saying, look, Steve, that 
this has to be so much better. If we're going towards London, the home games, we've got four years, we've, we've only got one opportunity to get this right. And, uh, and we need these staff to be better. And my assumption at the time was that this was all going to be about a process or a protocol or something tangible that we could just train somebody up on um, from a book. But it wasn't. It was all all interpersonal skill. It was all about communication. It was all about those those crunch moments that made such a difference. And and I I was a leader at the time and in as head of physiology, and I had to I had to try and support people about communication or or sending sending you know, uh, advising people that you're you're not developing trust. That really hurts. That's quite an emotional thing to be able to forgive people feedback on and and ultimately some people responded some people didn't and those people that didn't actually meant that they were moved out of that system and that's hard that's as a as a, a boss to be able to say to somebody that you no longer get to work in this environment because of the way you work that the methods are fine but ultimately your delivery of it doesn't stack up so so that was the moment that we, we a number of high assistants, high, head, heads of service, other other leaders in that system, started to scratch our head. But I went off on a slightly different tangent and started to research in conjunction with my wife Rachel, other high performance industries and what it takes to be a successful as a person and as a team, and then try and bring that back and apply that. And that's been very much the essence of of supporting champions. Excellent. So in terms of how you, so you said that certain practitioners weren't developing trust with the athletes that they were working with. How were you assessing that? Was that very much a subjective thing of how they you saw them interact? Was that interviewing with, with the athlete themselves? How, how did you go about that? Well, no, at the time it was, it was very much a case of that the, the, the relationship the, the the functional interaction that was going on a day to day basis it got to a point for so many athletes coaches and performance directors that that it was just it was there was something wrong that was the start point uh, it wasn't a case of we're evaluating your communication skills or uh, or your ability to develop trust or um, or commits to team working we weren't doing that systematically um, the, it was very much the case of people just saying this isn't right. Uh, we, we need better. And then we had to spend quite a bit of time understanding what that was. Uh, so so what, is, what is the problem? And someone might say something like, just at the wrong moment, just at that team meeting, just before the big, uh, big competition, their body language just stunk. And it, was, and, it, and it just corroded the team ethic. And so yeah, then you start thinking, is this a communication thing? Is, is this something that uh, someone's not self-aware? Uh, is this something that they, they, they don't understand what the big goal might be? So it could be multi, quite multifactorial, but there's a, there's a decent process that you can go to find out what that is. But also there's a, we've, we've now established our systems in supporting champions that can actually take someone from a place of incompetence around that interpersonal craft skill all the way through to being an outstanding team player. So in terms of the business, the Spartan Champions business, who is it you're working with? Is it institutes? Is it individuals that are getting you in to work with them as people? Teams getting you know getting you guys in to work with their staff? What's that business look like? Yeah, so we still work in sport. So there's, uh, we still consult with a number of professional uh, teams, whether that's in the UK, US, or other institute systems around the world. And part of that is uh, coaching the the leaders within that system, uh, diving in and and problem solving certain areas. That's still hands on work with uh, with coaches and athletes. Um, so uh, some athletes that we're still working with and and providing that sort of extensive. What I would tend to say is that our big focus is, is sort of problem solving performance for for athletes. Uh, so. Uh, so the recent case with uh, James Cracknell was a was an interesting one. James obviously used to work with James when he was uh, in his prime on the Olympic team, and uh, then he's between retiring from Olympic rowing in two thousand and four, he's run around the world, rowed around the world, just everything going, <laughs> and then 
and and then getting this crazy goal to to become the um to, to make it back into the cambridge boat to win the boat race which obviously it was successful in um at 46 years old so twice the age of most of the crew members older than some of their fathers um so an unprecedented level of ambition audacious really in many ways but um and and, and one of the most challenging cases i've worked on uh, from a from a number of different points of view from from age the fact that he was he was starved on Bear Grylls Island TV program beforehand, um, <clears throat> all the way through to managing studies and uh, aspects of his personal life, which were more challenging too. One thing that really interests me is, and it's, I think it's spoke about, well, is it spoke about a lot? I, I do hear it a lot from certain people on, who've come on the podcast who've kind of gone down slightly different routes and maybe looking left and right versus you know head down actually working directly with with coaches or with with athletes and that's how our industry and the the qualities that we bring and the qualities that you've clearly brought over the last 20 years how that relates to and how that can be transferred to business and what businesses can look at or do look at in terms of sport and what they can learn so i'd be interested to know a little bit more how you've like I say, look left and right in terms of the, the, the business and industry and what they can learn from you and what you're actually delivering to them? It's, it's been absolutely fascinating. I think I, I look back probably three or four years ago and think um, I might have had a modicum of arrogance around, oh, we work in the high performance system and everything you ever need to know about functioning as a human comes from sport. And um uh, that that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it, it's the, the, the you get the point is that yeah that the what the you benefit from in in sport is the pressure that you hope that you have a successful home Olympics, you hope that that you're able to help that particular athlete, and that then gives you focus. the The downside is that um, I suppose the the, the the lack of the bottom line uh, in in sport means that you know if you don't win then no one really suffers an awful lot <laughs> um, you know, except for a few circumstances nobody gets hurt nobody loses their life you know there's the, there's a societal impact that that is a positive thing that if things go well um, in business and in education, there are wider, deeper, and more profound consequences to to your actions, but they are not necessarily as measurable. So the, the sports performer, the 100-meter runner, will know where they stand. They get a ranking, whereas it's a little bit more vague in the business world sometimes. You try and measure a lot of stuff, but doesn't necessarily all map and relate to performance. So I've, I've met and worked with a number of uh, consulting firms like A.T. Kearney and Ernst & Young. And these these guys are putting their lives on the line in a very different way, becoming different types of high performers. They are under extraordinarily high travel demand, uh, pressure to perform. And what does uh, relate across from a, the performance science domain is is the... The idea that you can manage that pressure and that you can switch it and that you can introduce a number of healthy performance habits that that mean that your sleep, that your nutrition, that your fitness level are all taking you in a more positive direction. And um, it's been really humbling to meet some people that are uh, in genuine need and that have had genuine results uh, from applying this this problem-solving approach multidisciplinary approach to to the executive performer that is uh, that is under that uh, demand that's really that's really interesting so as working with these consulting firms it's not obviously it doesn't have to be or maybe has never been linked to any sport any sort of uh, business that's involved in sport it's been everything and everything um, there's a little bit of that so the uh, I think the rise in the premium level sporting challenges is another aspect that, that we're just starting to to do a little bit more work on. So the people that are uh, cycling from Lands and John O'Groats or, you know, you say to a you say to somebody in the city, I'm doing an Ironman, and they just say, 
only one. You know, there, there's there's some sort of inflation of ambition and, and achievement that people are getting from this. And and actually, there's some interesting data from Runners World that tracked the frequency and the amount of mileage that people were running. And if you if you plot it over the years, the the um, the point at which it begins to really rise and, and break away was the financial crisis in two thousand and eight. And so the sociologists seem to think that, that actually there's a, there's a link between the the uncertainty that has crept in into the the business world and society as a whole that that people are starting to reach to invest in themselves a bit more that, that I I can't I don't know where I stand when it comes to my work and so I need an outlet and that means resorting to exercise as a healthy investment but also I can enter this uh, this crazy event and I actually feel like I'm moving forward and, and I'm achieving something and that I'm acquiring some some healthy some healthy uh, attributes along the way and they're investing in themselves. And taking that control back, I guess, taking that uncertainty and, and bringing it back to themselves, something they actually can control, put my trainers on and go out for a run. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a lot of, a lot of what... Uh, the executive business market are uh, now in a place to 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 think differently. That things have been unsettling for for over a decade now, and so starting to think of breaking away from these traditional working habits of um, of office hours, um, of the fact that you've got to switch on to to your emails, the fact that you've got to have meetings that last several days and and you've just got to burn the candle at both ends. But thinking actually this this doesn't this these uh, habits do not relate to productivity. And if productivity is the sort of benchmark of of almost like a the key performance indicator that we would associate with whether that's performance speed, uh they're not seeing the 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 the, the, um, the match, and so they're now starting to think differently. So, what would be uh, more effective for them? And that might mean, look, we've only got one decision to make. Let's make it a fifteen-minute meeting, as opposed to an hour and twenty, and it's a big discussion about it. And then the rest of the time, you need to be investing in breaks. You need to make we as a as a company, you need to invest in uh, healthy snacks that empower brain activity, as opposed to impede it. So taking this type of thinking and, and making it work for them. So I know nothing about this world about in, in terms of the exec coaching and stuff, but is that is that a growing part of the industry that people are actually realizing that there is a real need and a real want from this this other world that we can really inform, educate, and improve performance? Well, I think that... So my my venture into doing corporate speaking has been interesting from the point of view that on the surface of it, I would I, I would sort of naturally think my knee jerk response was, "Oh, I'm up against uh, for a booking." I would often sometimes be up against people who've got an Olympic gold medal, and that's not me. I haven't. I'm 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 nobody in terms of athletic performance, but I know how to build a high performer and I know how to problem solve and get more out of people. And so the the, the business probably that I or the the major competition I'm going into is is actually the sort of business consulting where you might bring someone like a Deloitte in and, and they would troubleshoot an audit. What they're now bringing in is consultants, perhaps like myself, where actually the the performance mindset and the performance thinking that you can bring into that uh, can bring a whole new fresh wave of uh, methods and understanding and different ways of viewing the world that can unlock performance for them. That's the critical piece is rather than sort of me, I'm not interested in creating dependency on me. I'm interested in getting results for people that, that unlocking their potential. You've probably got the answer and the resources within your company let let me help you to unlock that for you. So would a lot of the, the contracts that you would get, are they kind of ongoing things that you would kind of drop into these firms and, and work with these individuals one-on-one? Is it like a, like you say, a, a more of a consulting, like a Deloitte type of scenario where they're coming in, auditing, giving them the recommendations to move forward with it? How does that normally work with you guys? Yeah, it, it, it ranges massively 
so that we, we have people that we've worked with throughout our time as supporting champions. So we set up uh, 2016. Uh, we've we've ha- we've had contracts throughout that time with with the same people, but at the same time, uh, our major focus is not necessarily to acquire a big, big old contract that lasts as a year and and so on. It's a it's a case of us focusing on, on almost like a flawless consulting that that um, this is comes from an idea that Peter Block uh, coined, is that. We're there to help you with your need in proportion to um, what we can offer. And it's a case of if if one session is all you need, that's what you need and that's all you're going to get from us. Uh, what we don't want to necessarily do is overcomplicate the issue um, because that, what that I then think, it means it drags the overall standard of the work down. If we're focusing on quality work with people, uh, quality impact, uh, then we believe that that's that's going to have the biggest effect on them, and and then hopefully that will create a a stronger reputation for the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. So I just want to take a little bit of a a detour and just chat about some of the other aspects of the business in, in terms of the content that you guys are creating. And I knew I'd, I'd try to leverage this in as, as seamlessly as possible um, with the with the podcast, with the blog, with the webinars, where. Where's that come from? Where do you think, again, going back to the need, what do you think is is needed from an industry point of view, which has meant that you wanted to take the the time and the effort and the and the investment to create these things, and, and obviously spending your time writing the blog, and where do you see that going? What's the what's the purpose of all that? Yeah, the the blog I started back in 2011, and it was a bit of a passion project as much as anything, just to to try and inspire people to, to thinking about professional practice in a different way. And the, this, and I, and I frame that very specifically because it comes actually from a place of frustration uh, that, that we, were, we were seeing that graduates coming out of the best universities with the best grades, uh, with the best glowing references from super professors, uh, were unskilled to, to work. Uh, so that was one aspect. So this is this was at interview that we we would have hundreds of applications. This was at the BOA and the EIS, hundreds of applications for jobs. And you just look at the paperwork and just think, oh my God, the talent here is so impressive. I feel wholly inadequate looking at the the qualifications and skills that these these guys have got on paper. And then they turn up at interview and they do not perform. So either they are hiding it and they don't know how to express it or they don't have it, which is the majority of cases. And that this particular concept has has worsened over time. The gap between what industry requires and what graduates are equipped and skilled to work with has grown. And we've got data on that. Um, some collaboration work that I've done with uh, Jamie Pringle shows that the gap has widened, which I think, without getting too embroiled into that, is that universities universities are under an awful lot of pressure to do research and operational efficiency, and industry has become far more expectant of the, of a higher level of standard. So the gap has grown, and then when people get into work, the complexity and the ambiguity and the the all the messy problems that come up on a day-to-day basis, people aren't equipped for that either. And so then people get tripped up within work, within teams, uh, five, 10 years down the line. So, so I, was, I was bearing the, I was the sort of pivot point for a lot of these decisions about whether we keep people or not. And so I started to think, rather than have a big old moany rant about this and just go, oh, isn't it terrible? <laughs> I thought, well, you know what? Let's try and do something positive and and share with people some of that insight. And I've always taken that brutal honesty of of this is what it takes. So I started to blog. I also started to creep in a number of slides at conferences. Like, so so my if you know my research background is is mainly around determinants of performance. So I started saying, well, what about our 
performance? What about the determinants of us? And uh, rather than just thinking about maximal force characteristics or VO2 max, all these sorts of things, what about us? What, uh, what determines our effectiveness? So that the, the blog, um, the blog was a sort of a, a weekly or a sporadic rant about uh, what we need to be doing, and then uh, coupled that with that, the, the response that I got from a number of presentations that led me to to writing the book, uh, which ultimately led to the business, and and then thinking about different ways that that you know ten five ten years ago. Um, Blogs were at their peak, maintaining that, but also looking at other media, like uh, the the podcast that we have, which is, which is, I suppose it would be very, you know, like different from yours, for example, Rob. About um, ours has got the theme of performance, as opposed to necessarily one aspect of performance. It's complex. It's messy. Let's learn from different fields. Let's see where it goes. And our our conference too is. It's it's probably not the easiest sell actually. If I if I just said oh it's a nutrition conference, everyone would know what it is. But this is what it takes to be successful in performance, and let's let's um let's come away from that experience feeling empowered to tackle it, as opposed to I'm going there to think that I'm going to get a reference that I can go and read and and then put a, a framework in place and everyone's going to be solved. So I suppose leaders do that with bringing in different um, different areas of business, whether and, and armed forces and all that kind of performance, what what makes performance and tries to obviously pull them people in. Is that, is that a similar scenario? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so a, a fairly similar uh, feel to uh, the, the conference. My, uh, my understanding and sense of many of these is that actually – we put a great more, great deal more emphasis on how it feels at the conference, and so this is this is a, another bugbear of mine that you go to a conference and you sit down uh, all alongside each other, all crossed arms, uh, all ready to find the nitpicky point that's wrong with that presentation or that data. And then what means that what that means for the presenter is that they stand up and and they try and show off. Uh, they will try and use as many acronyms to baffle you as possible, um, show them the vast level of achievement that they've acquired, and and intimidate you um, as a as a proof point. So that's that to me was just de- demoralizing of coming away from a conference just thinking I don't know what I'm doing. I can't do this. Um, I, I feel worse as a consequence of that professional development. Um, and so we spend a lot of time briefing and working with our speakers, setting the environment out to support people, and that, that, that we get an emotional response there and then on the day that people don't necessarily know that they, what the answer might be, but they feel stronger, emboldened to go and work on it and crack it. So we spend a lot of time working on that aspect of it which I think is a, uh, what we're becoming known as sort of our unique selling point, that you, you come to the Supporting Champions Conference and it feels different. And immediately you feel like you're connected into a community where people are prepared to have honest conversations about the, the nuts and bolts of it. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Steve. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, it's more focused around the emerging practitioner, the emerging coach, and some of the resources that Steve's putting out there in terms of the webinars, and obviously his views on some topical issues from internships to where to look for jobs to uh, what, how universities and what universities are preparing young coaches and young sports scientists for and how that could potentially be improved and potentially the mindset of the student could also be improved to help the whole situation, the whole ecosystem. But just before we do get into part two with Steve, I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted 
effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're gonna undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ReadyBand from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. Also sponsoring the Pacey Performance podcast today is Omega Wave. So Omega Wave is an, the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train for both the brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy levels and autonomic nervous system balance, it allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize training and then optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical practitioner to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. So this measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to their windows of trainability concept. So Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport, military and law enforcement agencies and are now the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So if you want to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, which is omegawave.com and on their social media channels. One, one specific blogs that, that brought you guys to my attention was the Letter to, letter to the 15,000, which I thought was absolutely superb and obviously has been updated since and again uh, a really excellent read so anyone that hasn't read that make sure you do why was that was that a bit of a frustration piece as well and how has the reaction what was the reaction from that have you had a lot i'm sure you've had loads of different conversations um on the back of that uh yeah so um amazing really it's been it's read nearly been read nearly two hundred thousand times, which is um, oh wow! Which must be my mum viewing it a lot. Um, just to check it, I'm checking my vocabulary or something. I don't know, but um, so okay, I, I was lucky. I went to University of Brighton, uh, where I my tutors were Peter Keane, who was the architect of the high performance system, performance director, Olympic gold medal winning coach, Steve Bull, outstanding psychologist with with England cricket, Joe Doust, who was my eventually my PhD supervisor, who could communicate any particular technical concept um, in a way that instantly you felt like you knew what you're talking about. And I was lucky in that regard. Um, but what I have I have seen and observed, and and I've probably spent time in in three quarters of the UK academic institutions over the last 20 years is I've seen a deterioration in the the quality of applied teaching. And so it feels as though it's descending so much more into disciplines and that it becomes quite transactional. We're going to teach you about this one discipline that we've boxed off and that I'm probably going to actually skew this course towards my own research interests because that that's much easier for me. Uh, so you have all these sort of strange courses sprouting up that that somebody's doing a whole module on muscle muscle tendon interactions. Like, what the hell's that all about? And you're not teaching them about training. Uh, what, what, what's what's happened to this world? So I think this sort of warped education that people uh, are experiencing and probably missold at the prospectus level. Oh look! Here's the here are the modules, but look at all these amazing careers you could have. Um, and I feel I feel that that is doing a disservice to the next generation. So so that was the problem. And rather than necessarily rant at academic organisations, primarily because they have very little will and motivation to change, because bums on seats are not uh, going down. Uh, that sports science becomes has become. Um, even more attractive and um, and competitive, but and also it's it's so employable. Uh, so universities are saying we don't need to change this. 
we've got one of the most employable, most attractive courses in the UK. So what uh, what's the what's the problem that we need to solve? So uh, rather than taking aim at uh, universities, although don't rule that out at some point, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, is just provide some offers and some some solutions to what students can do. It's like you know you're stuck you're stuck in this university system that's probably not going to equip you. Um, 75% of graduates at one university I was doing some work with aspire to work in elite sport. By the time they came out the other end, only 5% knew whether they could achieve it or not. That's just such a disservice. Wow. So it was a, it's a rallying cry, really, to say, look, there's, there's thousands of you graduating each year. Um, tough luck if you don't like the situation that you're in. Um, but here's what you can do about it. If you want to take action, and that's what it's all about, is make the difference for yourself. And I do not see that being any different for the people that have been really successful in careers. Uh, they've made it happen for themselves. So it's a brutal reality. And I, I think as much as anything, it's a little bit like the wheat from the chaff, um, is that I think there's a lot of people there that are really good, um, but they opt out because they're a bit lost. And I don't know what to do next. And this was about that, that intent of helping them with that. When you say the course is so employable, where are these people actually going to make them make universities think that it is an employable course? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's probably more uh, extremely well-qualified fitness instructors uh, than, you know, they've all got undergraduate degrees now as opposed to just a weekend fitness course back in, Back in my day, um, uh, a, a lot stay in teaching and research, which is, you know, if you take this, uh, the Ken Robinson approach to this, that's not surprising that universities are motivated to create the professors of the future. Um, and I think about 40% go into completely other fields. So banking, pharmaceutical sales, completely um a, diff a different career, which would speak to the fact that a sports science degree, whilst it's themed in sport, is a general science degree. And that, and even the specialist routes, whether it's physiology or strength and conditioning, they, they are generalist approaches. And, and that is appealing because you do see the world in a slightly broader view than, than most graduates. Interesting. So one thing that I spoke to Nick Grantham about was this this kind of thought about going into the industry with eyes wide open. Do you think because when you say that we've been the, the undergrads have been um, failed at the prospectus level, that they're not able to go into this process with their eyes wide open because of this? Um, the guy who's on the front cover at the local football club with his with his tracksuit on, saying, "You know how good this course was. You can come and work here." When actual fact, there's probably two of them in the whole city, and you know, three hundred in the whole country, or whatever that may be. So, you think that's the case? What we are getting, they are getting not going into the industry with their eyes wide open, and then three years later, actually figuring it out. I think it is beholden upon us as. Uh, experienced, seasoned, slightly um, zealous about this area to, to make a difference for those people. I think it is. Uh, I certainly, I certainly look back over my time and, and wish that I'd I'd spent more time vocalising things and campaigning for it. I think it is absolutely beholden upon uh, academics to make the change in the course because we are the ones that can help people open their eyes. Uh, it's not a case of looking to the graduates saying, open your eyes. It's about inspiring people. It's about giving people clear steps that you can take uh, and, and equally recognizing that not everybody's going to do that. Not everybody's going to, to get out there and, and acquire work experience because it does mean that they will fail. Uh, it will. It means that you're going to to knock on the door, and the coach is going to look at you, and you're going to say, "I am a sports science graduate. I am going to change your world." And they're going to tell you to piss off. And <laughs> so, that it's about learning from that. Just as every athlete has a session that that breaks them, uh, every athlete will think, "I can't do this." 
that's us putting our own performance mentality on this. So us training up to perform in the same way that an athlete does. So yeah, I, I, I do feel there's a little bit of uh, having a go at this new millennial generation that, that, that oh, they feel like they need to be spoon fed. And I'm not so sure. I think, I think it's up to us as the, uh, as the people who can show a brighter future and, and inspire them to do that. From your, from your experience, what, what are student expectations? And it'd be interesting to, if you, if you did have any insights from that kind of first year undergrad to expectations of, of graduates and, and master's students to, and I'm not trying to, like you say, I'm not trying to hammer the millennial generation, which everyone seems to be jumping on the bandwagon with, but is there expectation that there is jobs available and because they have a MSc and they've got a, I don't know, six months doing some work experience, they are, I hate the word because it's going to sound really negative, but entitled to be at the top of the, you know, top of the list when it comes to job applications. What's your experience of expectations at all levels? I, I genuinely don't think most students know what the landscape is like out there at all. I think they they will look at some of the the shiny jobs, the man cities of the world, or the or the Olympic environment that that end of it, and think, yeah, I fancy that. Um, and there is a difference between those that go, oh, I fancy that because I, I li- I'd like a tracksuit with my initials on it, versus those that go, I am deeply motivated to support people with a need and with the knowledge that I've got, and it's an altruistic thing, and I want to make a difference in this world. That that's a, a much stronger place for that motivation to to be nurtured from. Um, my my sense is that it, the, with the the sports science, the performance support world, it, it has grown so much more, and I don't necessarily know whether it's become more or less competitive. I think it's it's probably about the same. I I was. So in 1996, I got one of 10 full-time sports science jobs in the UK. There's only 10 people doing that as a living. <laughs> and wow, so then by 2004, when I joined the English Institute of Sport, there were 100 jobs in that system. There are 100 full-time sports science jobs. And now I don't know what it's like in the UK, probably three to 4,000 uh, roles of some sort, like the university sector is growing quite quite a lot. Professional clubs, um, quite quite sort of further down the leagues, are are starting to em- employ people. Um, and globally, I think there's a huge potential there for for. I don't. I'm not particularly convinced that many professional sports, and I include football, rugby, basketball. Uh, American football, baseball, I think there's a huge potential there for that to really unlock. There's not, uh, that if the, if you think about the, the risk of getting that wrong or the bottom line that it could improve, people are not exploiting performance support nearly enough. Um, so I think there's, an, there's a lot of potential there. Uh, so I don't see why people shouldn't be expectant. Um, I, I think that there's, there's a lot there. And I think the, the opportunity for you to consult personally on an individual basis as opposed to just thinking i want a full-time job in a club um i think that that is probably coming even more so that people need to gear themselves up to be able to consult independently i think that's a and having gone well you can you can talk about that more than definitely more than me but certainly that's a, a big shift in mindset from always being taught um to, you can get a job, it's going to be like kind of nine to five and it's going to be secure, you're going to get a pension, all that kind of thing, to then switching that mindset to going, I'm going to work with multiple different people in multiple different locations on on numerous days of the week. That's a big shift and that's something that, and going back to the webinars, that's, that, is that something that you're touching on in one of the webinars? Uh, yeah, very much so. So I mean, the, the webinar f- program at the moment is sort of starting with the fundamentals first, trying to inform that base of students and graduates as to what is it like out there? What do you need to do to acquire some of these experiences? Some of the crunch moments like in unpaid internships, which I think, again, you, you've spoken about on the, your podcast. So you mentioned that with with Nick, um, Nick Grantham. So 
that that's just about helping inform people and get some of these questions out. Um, but um, the the consulting idea is worth sharing the, the background thoughts is that the stability aspect of working in performance is a bit of a misnomer. I've never really known it. <laughs> yes. um, if there's been one constant, it's change. And so what you just choose your version of that. So the, the guys in the football clubs, there are some versions of stability where you, if I'm being a little bit pointed, they just get their head down. They just download the GPS. They just make sure the report's on the table and they don't say boo to a goose and they just get on with people. And there's a nice, comfortable, potentially six-figure salary for somebody to be had. Um, and they feel like there's a sense of belonging and community and they're doing the do, but they are genuinely <laughs> not making much of a difference. I see that a fair amount. And um, and that, that's sort of some of the auditing work that we've done for people is to is to sort of challenge the, the executives that, that put these people in place to say, is that what you want from that return? Uh, you, are you ticking a box? Is it just nice to have those people in place? Or do you want this to 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 improve player performance? Do you want this to to make sure you're shifting the uh, and improving the fatigue levels? Uh, what what is it you you're trying to get from that? So there is a stability here and there. Um, in the Olympic environment, there's a, every four years there'll be a, a seismic change and shift around, and, and people will move jobs. But also the funding gets reviewed. You don't know what that's going to look like. And big sports are probably the safest place to be cycling and swimming and athletics and so on but equally uh, there's a brutal aspect of that, that that means that the funding could be pulled and your job could, could then uh, change so that, that change could be you're no longer full-time uh, and we're getting rid of you or we only want you for three days a week and then what are you going to do now this is fairly common for the psychologists and nutritionists of the world. This might be a little bit more familiar to some of the strength coaches because they they might have come through the ranks of or almost doing that internship in gyms where you're you're doing part time hours. Um, for, for the physiotherapists, for the performance analysts, for the physiologists, for the biomechanists. This is a new reality, really, and I think that people have to wake up to it. I think, what am I going to do if I don't have a full-time job? Or, actually, I'm not necessarily convinced that I can depend upon this employer for my long-term sustainable income. And therefore, again, similar to the letter to 15,000, similar to a lot of the, 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 the tone of our conference, it's about what can you do about it? What action can you take uh, to, to make sure that you are in a better place longer term? There's a few things that I really want to dive into, and it's, it's given your um, given your interest in in the kind of the business side of things and how you are going into you know dealing with executives and things. Is there a knowledge from up the chain? And I think you may have said it jokingly. Do you do, does the does the person on the board or at that exact level know that that guy is just downloading the GPS? He's getting a decent salary. He's just putting it on the table and he's getting his head down. But genuinely. From that, I mean, it'll differ from organization to organization, but is there a genuine understanding of what that club is investing their money in to employ this person and what they're actually doing to add to the bigger picture? Not in just in terms of winning a Saturday, but developing this club and moving it in a direction that they want to go in. Is there a genuine understanding there? Or is that kind of, oh, that's not our world, leave it to the... I don't know, head of performance, he can sort that. What's, what's your experience of that? I think that the CEOs uh, of the future will have to tune into this. They'll have to be literate of the potential for performance benefit. Results on the pitch are going to be the, the currency by which that club it becomes profitable. That's the CEO's uh, and the accountants are the ones that often drive a lot of decision-making. That's the same reason that when I went around McLaren a few years ago and they showed me Lewis Hamilton's car that they lifted off uh, the pit and they put in a, in a van and then brought back to, uh, to Woking, I said, is that the same car? And they said, yes, it's exactly the same car. And I said, that sticker has got bubbles on the car. <laughs> they, they just whacked a sticker on it. Uh, that's the marketing people. 
they're very powerful uh, decision makers. And so if you can't, you can't sell shirts if you haven't got a good brand and a brand is underpinned or the, one of the determinants of aspects of the, the brand is results uh, or how you play. So if you, if you don't tune into this fairly soon at that level, then you're leaving performance, you're leaving the club uh, vulnerable. Um, so, so one of the features of the British Olympic high performance system that is uh, was particularly interesting was around so t- 2005 the London was awarded the home games. 2007 the budget Gordon Brown's budget was uh, shifted things around so that the um, so that the institute system didn't hold the positions. It was the sports that made the decision. So previously, we used to sit there and say, right, okay, there's a uh, there's an energetic sport. They need a physiologist. Uh, there's a weight-making sport. They need a nutritionist. There's a technique-based sport. They need a biomechanist. And it was informed from that point of view. But then what it did tend to do was bloat some of those teams where you're, you're, you're thinking about science first as opposed to the needs of the sport. Then the shift was made to say, uh, sport, you decide. What do you invest in? And it was a you know constructive two-way conversations in in places. Um, but then what you got was this sort of uh, mix of what some some experience of I've used that discipline before, so I think I know what that's 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 going to bring. And and at worst, there were pockets of poor education about what uh, something could bring. So uh, one reflection would be that biomechanics doesn't get particularly invested in in that situation. Why is that? Because they don't understand it. I don't. I don't still. But they, they, but I know the benefits of it. That if you if you move a seat on a bike, you get power. Um, so they don't understand it because they haven't necessarily done that educational piece. And so whether you take it from the uh, Olympic or you take it from the professional team sport perspective, there's a need there to invest in your own education as a decision maker so that you know what areas that you can benefit from. So, yeah, I, th- I think this is, this is a massive opportunity for, for performance-based sports, but equally, uh, having seen this in business, that you would meticulously start approaching the, the resource that you have in people and in teams, as opposed to just thinking, we need to invest in analytics or we need to invest in some new tech. And that, that just often leads to a lot of white elephants. When you talk about the CEOs of the future having to understand what's going on at the at the level of the you know interaction between the, the the practitioner and the player, is there anything from your experience that the that can go the other way to add to to help that practitioner that coach really embed themselves and and create that or communicate that value up the chain and educate them to ensure that their in the plans and their understanding of what they're doing is is vital yeah i think one of the biggest mistakes that practitioners make when they first have contact with a uh, an athlete or a team is to tell them what they do or tell them what they think they should be doing um and this was this was my biggest surprise going into the high performance system in the 90s but it's still is rife that you get a scientist or a strength coach or nutrition, whatever, turn up and say, you should be doing this. <laughs> and just how effective that is to get you rejected. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. that is amazing. If you really wanted to just bounce out of an organization <laughs> or, or be completely isolated really early on, that would be the main tactic to use. Turn up and go, you know those Olympic gold medals you got doing all that that previous stuff. I tell you what, I've got a new, I've got a new insight. And you know what? That insight's been written up in a journal with an impact factor of over two. It's just nonsense. So, uh, uh, but it's also just a very effective way of, of eroding trust early on. That that trust and rapport is 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 formed very quickly. First seven seconds, pivotal. Uh, first few days, and demonstrating that commitment that integrity uh and some of these you can deconstruct what trust and and that initial engagement looks like 
So I think one of the biggest reframes is that if you're if you're consulting, if you are leading, if you're um, bring it in a, holding a responsibility to bring science and understanding forward for the benefit of somebody else, the first realization is not about you. You're not there fundamentally for you. And whilst you, you have these drivers of income and achievement and ego yourself, if you, if you have this lens of, right, there's, a, there's an Olympic athlete, uh, I get to work with them and that's going to make me look good. Um, or uh, it's about me demonstrating, showcasing my knowledge to that person and you're, you're set up for fail. If you can start thinking about what is their need and what is their, what is their primary um, insecurities, uh, what are the gaps, what are the things that I can add value to. Um, and, and if you think about how you can uh, how you can help add value to them on a day-to-day basis, then it means that you're a little bit more patient. Uh, you think about making the journey easier. Uh, you think about uh, working to their need. Um, and sometimes it might not be the biggest priority, but you can build on fertile ground. If you're, if you're attending to their needs and what they want, and then you can start to hook other aspects in. But you can probably only do that more effectively if you are, if you're, if you're doing that from a place of positive, constructive support as opposed to criticism. I can't remember what your question was now, but I had a good old rant then. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. That's after. No, it was. It was just about going the other, going the other way in terms of practitioner to up the chain and making them understand um, and really add value to the to people that um maybe don't understand your job but are actually employing you and paying you but i think we, de- we definitely touch on that in the first bit so that's absolutely cool there it's, it's certainly worth having up your sleeve some very simple explanations of some tricky concepts so for example uh i love the fact that when a psychologist talks about you've got this uh, lump of of fatty tissue in your skull and uh, some of it does some clever thinking and some of it gets quite emotional. And when you when you get nervous, then the emotional stuff takes over and therefore you don't think as clearly. Some some simple explanations that make people go, ah, and can I now train that? Yes, you can. And you're off and running. Um, so, so yes, um, there, is a, there is a responsibility to do that, but at the right time, I would say. Mm-hmm. Excellent. We're coming close to an hour, and I just want to ask you to pull together a a couple of the resources that we've mentioned. So we've mentioned the podcast, we've mentioned the blog, we've mentioned the webinars that are coming up. Where can people find out a little bit more about all them three and maybe um, a bit more info on the schedule of webinars that are coming up and who that might be applicable for? Yeah, so I'm pretty convinced that you're gonna you've got an extensive lot of show notes as a fellow podcaster i will know <laughs> absolutely i will know that that's something that you uh, that you do um so that the main resource is through the website supportingchampions.co.uk uh, where you can see all the information about uh, the blog uh, some of the webinars and the and the podcast <clears throat> the podcast is there as much as anything to it's not instructional there's no sort of guides there there's no it's it's about it's about inspiring people and letting people reflect and digest some thoughts that they might be able to to integrate into their thinking or to challenge their current um, uh, models and thoughts uh, the, the webinar program is um is already underway so um we've got a catch-up service for at least one of them so far um Webinars is about us trying to make it another another form and test a, 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 a online learning platforms. So we've had hundreds of people uh, sign up so far. Uh, the focus at the moment is about those that are studying and uh, recently graduated. Again, f- falling into that sort of circle of people that that have already come out with a sports science degree and might not necessarily be working in that field, but we're still really motivated about coming coming back and and, um, and using their their knowledge and skills so we've had we've got a session on uh, where to look for jobs and literally guide them through what's the, what's the field look like out there and where to actually start to look but also how you diagnose some of these strange coded cryptic adverts 
Um, we've got one coming up um, on unpaid internships, which is a bit of a hot topic and thorny issue. And I'll, I'll hopefully provide some balance to that d- discussion. Uh, one that's probably already over-registered, actually, uh, which is about getting set up as a performance professional. I think, again, people are starting to recognize that that investing in themselves and their own, the things that they need to consult with. Um, and then how to secure relevant work experience. Literally some ideas about how you'd knock on a door and, uh, and make the approach. And then I've got three that are focusing on that, that crunch moment of applying for a job how you craft a good CV in a letter. Having seen tens of thousands cross my desk over the years, um, I do not read them all for 20 minutes at a time. It's instantaneous. Um, and then the, the idea of interviewing for jobs, how, what, what actually goes on, and so understanding the mechanism of it, and then how you actually perform in that um, scenario. And then Depending on the appetite and, to the, and the response to the webinars, then we'll, we'll look to try and develop some further resources for uh, students and for early career professionals to help advance their career quickly. Get good quickly, effectively, is the tagline to this. Superb. And what are your, what's the social channels that you're on, Steve? What's the best place? Twitter? Yeah, Twitter's Twitter's probably um, where most of the action's at. We had a go at Instagram. We're still getting there with that. Uh, we've got a Facebook group site that I can provide you the, li- the link for, Rob. Um, Absolutely. I'm on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and the wider team for Supporting Champions at support underscore champs. And if people want to look me up on LinkedIn, then um, then I'm happy to connect with people and uh, and answer any questions they might have. Lovely. Well, thank you very much. I, I've, I've promised to keep you under an hour, and I have done, um, as long as I don't ramble for another 25 seconds. Um, but no, Steve, thank you very much for your insights. Really appreciate your time. And um, yeah, thank you very much for coming on. And uh, we'll keep in touch and chat soon. And good luck with everything. Cheers, Rob. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 240 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Steve. So along the same lines as the Nick Grantham episode, Brett Bartholomew episode, this episode really touched on some interesting topics for the emerging coach and the emerging practitioner. But not only that, for the the coaches that are potentially looking at other options, whether it be consulting, whether it be adding extra value to um, the organization that they're working higher up the chain. So really interesting chat with Steve. Big thanks to Omega Wave, Fatigue Science, I Measure You, and Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't pressed subscribe, please press subscribe on your chosen podcast player, and every Thursday morning UK time, you will get a world-leading practitioner appearing on your phone for your commute, for your run, while you're doing the housework, whatever it may be. So thank you again for your support in advance, and I will chat to you next week.